Hello, folks. This is your host, Tammy Turner, and you are now listening to the Tierra Talk Show. We bring you rare interviews with the makers of Disney magic. Whether they be singers, actors, Imagineers, animators, they've all made their mark on the Disney name. To find out more about the show and other episodes, head to our official website at www.thetierratalkshow.com. Be sure to look below at the show notes in the show more section for links to our Twitter and Facebook pages, including videos and websites mentioned in the following interview. Photos and audio clips that are featured in the show belong to their rightful owners and are used for educational purposes only. All guests' opinions are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent the opinions of the Tierra Talk Show or the host. The Tierra Talk Show is not associated with the Disney Company. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's episode. And from all of us here at the Tierra Talk Show, have a hoop-de-doo day. So this week, I'd like to welcome composer Richard Bellis to the show. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Tammy. It's good to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. You've had so many composing credits for various Disney projects, so I thought I'd list a couple of them for listeners. We first have Indiana Jones Stunt Spectacular, which is at Walt Disney World. We also have the Motors Stunt Show Spectacular, which is also in Disney World and Euro Disneyland. We have a Bugs Life Show, Countdown to Extinction, which is also the new dinosaur ride in Animal Kingdom, the Tiki Room in Tokyo Disneyland, Captain EO Pre-Show, one of my favorites. That was in all the parks. So among these and others, which was the first musical composition that you created for the Walt Disney Company? I've done several composition projects and many arranging projects. Um, The first composition was the pre-show, I think, for Star Tours. Yes, that was a while ago. Um, <laughs> I, I think Star Tours turned 25 before they, before they redid the show. And actually, the original show is still running in France. The new show, as you know, uh, Michael Cicchino did the score, um, still using, uh, because you can't get away from it, the John Williams music for the ride itself. Because it's classic Star Wars. It's great music. <laughs> exactly. Now, I worked on orchestrating and arranging a lot of stuff way prior to that. Uh, As a matter of fact, the first, my first memory of working for Disney was uh, my friend George Wilkins called me up. Uh, He had just been hired by Disney to prepare to take over for Buddy Baker, who was getting ready to retire. Uh, Buddy, as you probably know, was one of the last people originally hired by Walt Disney. He was Mr. Music at the Disney Studios. But he was getting ready to retire, and George Wilkins was being primed to take over that position. So George and I were old friends and had worked together on many, many projects. And George called me up and he said, what are you doing? I said, not too much, I'm pretty free. He said, good. He says, because we have 90 hours of original music to write and record for something called Epcot. So this was prior, this would have been probably around 1980, prior to the 1982 opening of Epcot. Buddy was involved and George and several other writers. And we originally did things like the Imagination Pavilion. So I worked on those for a long time and did a lot of orchestration and various arrangements. And uh, But the first original composition 
uh, I was called in uh, on West Star Tours, which was also the first experience with having to work on an attraction from scratch and an attraction that was groundbreaking in its technology. You know, the, the um, motion base, it was called at the time. How does that work when you have to incorporate John Williams' music into the ride and also your own? Well, there was no question. You know, and, and John Williams' music is also in the Indiana Jones ride, which I did uh, for Anaheim. The whole ride itself, once you get into the module, was all from John Williams' music, but it had to be assembled to fit the film. So that becomes a job of going through all of John Williams' scores and pulling out sections, uh, six seconds of this, 10 seconds of that, 20 seconds of this. And it's like scoring a film, but with somebody else's music. And we didn't just take the recordings of those music. We actually took the scores and created one piece of music and then re-recorded that music with a live orchestra, about an 80-piece orchestra that was uh, done specifically for the, for the ride. So the original work of mine was for the pre-show, everything that happens from the time you enter the building. Something called the Droids Room made it onto a, a number of the Disney soundtracks that are that are music from the parks, you know. One of the things that I saw sort of concerned fans write about in the blog when they were going to do the new Star Tours was, are they going to keep the announce chime, the notes that, oh. uh, and, and Michael Giacchino said, oh, absolutely, we've got to keep that. And you know something that was the biggest surprise to me because you know, initially nobody knew what kind of success Star Tours was going to have. And I just came up with five notes. And uh, now they've become sort of iconic, which is really fun. So when you're asked to work on a project, whether it be for a film or for an attraction, how do you gain inspiration for the piece? Well, the inspiration usually comes from the deadline. Um, <laughs> uh, it, you know, it's it's nice when you can afford to have inspiration, but it can't be necessary or you'll never get the job done. A lot of people think of scoring films or scoring the Disney parks, uh, think of that music as art. It, it isn't art. It comes from art, which is music. It's more of an artisan's job. It has a purpose. It has to be done at a certain period of time, and you get paid for it. While you're influenced by, you know, the, the beauty of the Disney things is that we're usually brought in months, sometimes even a year before the attraction is to open. And they make us part of the uh, creative team. And we ride on various mock-ups of the various attractions. I, I did anyway, because I seem to do fewer and fewer films for Disney and more and more of the of the actual rides. So we'll go on those rides and we'll talk in meetings about what's important. You probably know very well by now in all the interviews you've done that for every attraction there is a backstory. And it's a backstory that very often no one who experiences the attraction will know about. But everybody who worked on the attraction knows about it because it is the story that guides everything that you do. The story of the uh, of the hotel 
in the Tower of Terror, for example, you know, is a very specific story and that keeps everything in context because there are teams of people working on it. And by referring to this one story, everybody stays in context. So so there are lots of chances for inspiration a lot of the way, and there's a lot of input. <laughs> and then you just inject the bleeding edge of technology into so many of these, and that becomes the challenge that makes it really interesting. I'm just kind of floored when I think about the story work that goes behind an attraction, and then also, which is great, that they actually collaborate with the musicians and with the composers, with everybody, because everybody, it is a team effort to make an attraction happen. We can't just have the attraction without any music or sound effects or any visuals. So it really does take everyone, and I'm so glad that you got to partake in that. That's very cool. I just think that's so interesting. <laughs> well, you know, there's nobody there's nobody who will ever have the vision that Walt Disney had, and yet everyone is devoted to try and uphold that vision uh, or that visionary type of outlook. Mm -hmm. And in order for that to happen, it does take a team of people. Actually, it took a team of people even when Walt was around, but he was the guiding vision behind everything. And if there was a question, he could answer it. And if somebody got a little too far out, he would pull them back in. So now by creating this story and, and editing and changing the story so that it makes total sense and will withstand the test of time, you create the vision first and everybody buys into that vision, whether it be the, the set decorators or the technology folks building the ride. Everybody has to buy into that process. And it makes for, you know, as, as you well know, a product that is without peer anywhere else in the world. What exactly is the step-by-step -step process in creating a score so we could see this vision or hear it specifically for any theme park attraction for Disney for you? Well, it, it varies from attraction to attraction. When there is something like Indiana Jones, it's really easy. You're walking into a franchise that is already set in stone. Difference then becomes how are you going to adapt it to whatever the attraction is. And the, and the perfect example is the difference between the live stunt show in Florida based on Indiana Jones and the ride in California based on Indiana Jones. Same music, I, I mean, same general musical area, but the challenges are much different. We did the stunt show in Florida many, many years ago because the music had to be timed to the various stunts. And because those stunts were performed by human beings, there was a lot of variation. And as a matter of fact, with the same people, the same stunt personnel, there was a lot of variation from the time they started on the rehearsals until the time they actually got to the show. They would get better, they would get faster, and the timings would change. We had a truck on the stage in, with a digital recording editing machine and after we recorded the music in LA we'd go in we'd go into Florida we'd go into this truck and after timing a particular stunt sequence we'd go in and we'd edit the music to that and then we'd play it back from the truck while 
the stunt performers would rehearse it again. And if it was a little long or a little short or needed a change here in the middle, then we'd go back into the truck and we'd edit it again. But because circumstances will change, there had to be long tails to the music before the next piece of music came in so that if something went wrong or there was a delay... The music didn't just go straight ahead. It had to wait for the next cue. Especially uh, if something goes wrong. Especially if something goes wrong, yes. And have extra timing to, to kind of pretend to clean it up. When the show goes on, the show goes on. So regardless, you know, you need to be careful what's going to happen, but still make sure it's timed right. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. Now, in the stunt show in Indiana Jones stunt show in California, we actually wrote a cue called Stuck in the Mud because... The ride does have to stop occasionally in order to get um, disabled folks in and out of the cars, and there can be breakdowns. So when that happens, uh, we automatically go into a queue that's called stuck in the mud, and <laughs> nothing nothing happens except this queue just keeps sort of repeating and repeating for stuck in the mud. And do you have a more preferred slash favorite type of score that you scored? I think the the musical, the purely musical highlight for me was um, Reflections of China. Because this was scoring a film, basically, I had to research. It, this is sponsored by the government of China, even though the instructions were to write it for Western audiences. So it has to it has to be authentic enough. The Chinese elements have to be authentic enough to pass muster with the government of China. But it is written for Western ears and Western audiences. European music is pretty much like Western music. Chinese music is very different. And if you didn't grow up in that culture, it really takes some listening. Frankly, listening is not all that easy. I had to do it in sort of 10 minute spurts, you know. So trying to discover what it is about Chinese music that is that makes it substantive so that you're not writing the equivalent of Mary Had a Little Lamb, you know. It, it takes a lot of thought and a lot of, um, of research. How did you do that specifically since that is a 360 film? So how were you watching this film so you could, you know, look at it and then play back music with it? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> it was given to me with a single screen, nine different panels on the single screen. Um, and you sort of have to choose a point of view. Now, so did the cinematographer. So it's not all that difficult uh, to choose the one screen that is the main focus. But you do have to be aware of everything that's going on around you as well. And then, of course, you have to mix it into nine different speakers. So it's not like 5.1. It's like 9.1, where <laughs> different instruments are coming out of different speakers. So I think that was, that was musically... Um, the most gratifying for me. Certainly the other, the other things, the, um, the stunt shows, all of the stunt shows were fun and challenging. Um, 
uh, the, a recent one too. I, I love the the tiki room in Japan with all the Lilo and Stitch references and the Hawaiian music. <laughs> and then I also did the Mexico Pavilion at Epcot. I love listening to the music on that too. And then you got to work again with Donald. That's that must have been an honor too because he has his song. <laughs> that's that's right. Yes, and we had to be in the studio while he sang. Oh boy, he's. <laughs> He's an interesting character. (laughs) (laughs) So are you currently working on any upcoming Disney projects? No, I'm not. I was just talking to a friend of mine, and uh, as a matter of fact, a former, um, uh, I'll call him a mentee, he came through the ASCAP film scoring workshop, which I've I've, uh, been a part of for 16 years, a young composer named Joe Trapanese, who worked on the picture Oblivion, and he is uh, doing some work for Disney for the Shanghai Park, actually. Wow. but no, I'm not doing anything. You know, I think uh, I think it's time that they move to a younger group. I've been I've been uh, having fun with Disney since, as I say, 1982 or 1980 or something like that. That's a long run. But here I have three more fun Disney questions. I always ask my guests. I call them the Fab Three questions. Uh-huh. So we'll start with the Donald one. So okay. The Donald one is: As a child, what Disney film would you like to watch over and over and over again? See now, <laughs> you wouldn't even know of the films that I would watch as a child. Oh, try uh, me. <laughs> uh, no, I, 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 I loved all of the Disney films, and I can't remember the exact name of. Uh, and one was not animated. It was the 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 was it the Living Desert? Yes, uh, the the documentary, right? Yeah. Yes, I think that's loved that. And not to sidestep the question, but let me give you a, a, another kind of. Michael Giacchino insisted I say this at the convention and tell this story. (laughs) I auditioned for to be an original Mouseketeer. No way! (laughs) And I auditioned on a Thursday, got a phone call on Friday that I got the job, and I was to report to work on Monday, and on Saturday I got the measles. (gasps) No! And And they replaced me. Uh, with Bobby Burgess, um, oh, no. or so the story goes. And the and the other strange thing about that is that the person I auditioned for was Buddy Baker, wow. who I who I never even met until much later in life when we were working on uh, on Disney projects. And then I I worked with him at USC when we were both the teaching and the film scoring program there. It's so small it's. A, after all. <laughs> it, oh, oh, I guess so. <laughs> well, I I don't know if we should thank the measles or not, but you wouldn't have done Star Tours if it wasn't for the measles. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> and now for our goofy question. Yeah. So what Disney character do you think would be your best friend if you met them in person? You know, I've got I've I've gotta go with Mickey. Um, uh, because um, uh, because Mickey's a leader and a visionary, and I and I like that in a person. So I think that I think that it would be definitely Mickey. And our last one, which is the Mickey question. So if I asked you to name any Disney song at this moment, what immediately comes to mind? Well, you, you've already implanted it. Anytime someone says <laughs> it's a small world, 
Uh, now, if you want to ask me what my favorite is, that would be different. But the one that comes to mind, of course, since you mentioned it, is It's a Small World. <laughs> my favorite is, and you know something, Disney doesn't own it, uh, is When You Wish Upon a Star. It's because I love writing it. I love arranging it. And I've done it many times. And early on, and it's a mistake that I'm sure uh, Disney folks regret, every generation of them regret, is that they sold, the, they sold the rights to that song. And so they don't own it any longer. But what a wonderful tune that is. And if there's anything that for me is the epitome of everything Disney, it's that. But thank you so much, Richard, for coming on the show. Listeners, you can always head to Richard's official website to find out more about his compositions, information about his lectures, which I saw some of your YouTube videos on, and they're quite amazing. I like that. I think oh, it's very thanks. interesting. Thank <laughs> and up, you. And upcoming projects as well at www.richardbellis.com. Richard, is there anything you'd like to plug before we uh, sign off here? Nothing I'd like to plug except uh, your podcast. I think this is great fun, oh. and I'm so <laughs> glad that you're doing it oh thank you so much and we hope there's another you know disney attraction score you're gonna have because we're i excited. hope so too and I'm... you'll you'll be the second to know yay because <laughs> <laughs> donald will be the first <laughs> yes exactly <laughs>